Say again, welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I'm your host. We'll be joined by Regan DeLoggins. We've got a, we've got a, a this is another one of those kind of mixed bag shows where we've, we've got uh, some news that is, that is broken, uh, some things that are happening within different communities, um, uh, different places, New York, other places. Uh, so uh, I, I first, let me again welcome our listeners from both uh, New York City on WBAI and from Washington, D.C. on WPFW. If you are listening to either one of those stations or if you're listening online, I would greatly appreciate if you support one of these fine stations for carrying our program. And you know what? Support the station anyway. <laughs> these are great stations that offer you um, uh, a diverse mix of programming that you won't hear uh, anyplace else. I would argue that you're not going to hear a show like like Regan's and mine <laughs> anywhere else uh, on, on radio. And, and frankly, you're probably not going to hear a whole lot of it. We put the show up as a podcast, and you can find Resist Resistance Radio with John and Regan on a podcast if you search that. Um, but we do offer something unique here. We have a stronger position on many Native issues than perhaps is even regarded as the conventional wisdom. But that's only because most people aren't tapped into that conventional wisdom. So uh, if you are listening to either one of these stations, I do hope that you'll support the programs. If you're listening on WPFW, I, I, I urge you to call their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFWFM.org. Follow the prompts and make a donation. Uh, if you're listening in New York, then I'm, I'm going to encourage you to go to WBAI's pledge line, which is 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give to WBAI.org. Look, we are still in the, this is probably the last show that we're, uh, that I'm doing that is in the, um, in the midst of their tower fund for WBAI. So if you go online, go to WBAI.org, you can, um, Follow the prompts for the for the tower fund, and if you make that call to two one two two zero nine two nine five zero, you can uh, specify that you want to make a donation to the tower fund as well. And by tower fund, of course, I'm talking about the tower where we broadcast from in New York City. All right, uh, a couple things. First off, uh, uh, Reggie, do we have Regan yet? Uh, Regan is still okay. Um, being is in, impending. <laughs> All right. All right. To Regan those of you who are listening, impending. sorry, we we did have a I had a little bit of a break. I thought we lost connection and we didn't. So let me continue. Um, and Regan will be joining us shortly. We we have a couple of things, um, news items. We are going to talk about the removal of the Teddy Roosevelt statue from the Museum of Natural History. That's kind of a big deal, and it's something that that Regan and myself and um, my former host, Shawnee Rice, we were all so much very involved in raising that issue. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, a couple of other things. There was recent news made because Deb Haaland, the uh, um, Interior Secretary for, uh, for the U.S. Department of Interior, issued an order um, that is requiring all of the um, national parks and monuments that have the word squaw in it to, to change the name. Now, there's a big push. I mean, there, there are towns and villages and resorts and all kinds of other places um, that have had that name uh, land. You know, there was, right here in uh, near Buffalo, there was a place that they called, quote, unquote, Squaw Island, and, uh, and that, was, uh, that was changed. And for those of you who are not familiar, the word that oftentimes is now being called the S word is not the native word for woman. It is not the native word for woman. Now, there have been some derogatory expressions, even within our languages, that have been altered so that word became used primarily by non-native people to describe a native woman. But it is an insult. It is an insult. It was, it's a derogatory term. Some of the etymology of that word is traced back to things like some of the female anatomy. Um, in, uh, in Mohawk or Ganyageha, that word comes from a word that we call ojitsqua. And that word by itself has nothing to do with, with women. It's, it's actually the word that we use for something like oatmeal or porridge. The reason that word ever got associated with women, frankly, it had to do with, um, with, a, with, a, with a yeast infection condition that women might have. So to the extent that any person would have ever been called ojitsqua, it was not meant as a compliment. It was really referring to, to a woman who was having, 
who was having a, a medical condition that may have been unpleasant for her and for perhaps other people. But, and I, and I hate to make light of this because that word that took on this overall Americanized definition of a native woman is anything but. And, and I haven't widely talked about the word Ojitsukwa because, you know, because it's, it's, it's offensive. I mean, I'm actually offended that native people even use that word in that way. Um, but that's, at least from the, the Mohawk etymology, that's where the closest thing we have to come that, that ties to the, to the S word. But that word is being uh, wiped out. And I don't know what the process is and how long. I know there's some pushback. There's always going to be pushback. Um, but there are something like 900 parks and monuments and places under federal, some sort of federal designation that have that word as its name or part of its name. And I mean, it's just, it, to me, it's just incredible. Look, as much as we talk about the mascot issue and, um, and the inappropriateness, obviously, you know, for those people who watch football, there's every weekend they get to watch 50,000 fans in, in, in Kansas City making offensive tomahawk chops and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's as much as we talk about this stuff, when you talk about some of the words that are, that are really specifically um, slurs, like the R word, like the S word, or even words like, like savages, which was not about us, I mean, the word's origin is, you know, is, has a French origin, but it, it has been applied to us. And, and look, in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson referred to us as merciless Indian savages. Yeah, that's, that's what the, the president of the United States, or the would-be president of the United States, that's how he referred to, to, to Native people in, in one of these much-lauded, much-praised and honored documents uh, that are a part of U.S. history. And people wonder why we have a, have a skewed view of all that stuff. But there, there you go. There, there you have it. But this word in particular, it's not like anybody ever said, well, how, well, how do you say woman in Mohawk or in you know, Ojibwe? Or, 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 or Nobody's ever did that. They, they, they took this word, and by most accounts, the word was grabbed up and became a part of American vernacular based on, and, and whether it's solely from, uh, Mohawk etymology or or other. I did hear one place that said, yes, that word is the the tail end of a word that we use for specifically for women. I, I But frankly, I only heard that once and I don't, I don't even recall where it came from. But it is not, by and large, it is not the word that has ever been used in any native language that I'm aware of for, uh, for women. So, you know, I'm glad that Helen has stepped up on this there are so many things that she is not doing and, and I'm glad she did this and, and I'm not going to, you know, give her a passing grade for, for that alone. We'll, and we'll see how this plays out. Um, and again, I know let, many people say this about those of us involved in the mascot issue. Well, aren't there more important things? Yes, there are more important things. Um, but they all kind of relate to this idea of grabbing our identity, misappropriating it, and, allowing the federal government or state government or media or anybody else to define us for ourselves. I mean, this, this is what we face. We face it with Hollywood, obviously. But, you know, I think about, I mean, I think about the federal government's uh, definition of a tribe, band, or nation of Indians and, and what they consider, how they've redefined us. And this is, this is only going back to like 1934. I mean, prior to that, there was all kinds of, um, I mean, there was all kinds of language. I mean, we had been called domestic dependent nations. We were called, you know, uh, ignorant savages. We were called uncivilized. And, and that if we did not want to join the, um, uh, the nation of humanity, of, 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 of human civilization, that we must be destroyed. That's, that's coming from, from a U.S. senator saying something like that. I mean, this is, this is Senator Harlan, I believe his name was. Yeah, th I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that Native people have experienced. All of this derogatory language, it is all based in not only the, the overt racism that was a part of colonization, that was a part of even the discovery, what people call the discovery era, slavery, genocide, all of it. And we still go through it today. We, we still go through it today. So it's, 
you know, I, I think it's important that some of these words get challenged. I think the and its words usages get challenged. And how do you talk? I mean, if you don't address words like like the S word, how can you address words like or, or, or issues like missing and murdered indigenous women, the objectification of women, especially when that word is, almost was never used in a way that could be construed as complimentary. I mean, it never was. And, and the fact that that places got, you know, um, got that name was still never meant to, it was never meant to honor Native people or Native women. You know, and, and there's oftentimes a backstory to how a, per, how a place um, got that name in the first place. And usually it has to do with a, with a Native woman and some type of interaction with white people, which oftentimes wasn't pleasant. So this is, I mean, look, I, I'm glad it's done. But like I said, there are a lot of pressing issues that, that Halland has not addressed. We're, you know, we're kind of anxiously awaiting to see what's going to happen as Halland turns up the heat on what the United States, how the United States, I should say, say deals with residential schools. And this, you know, look, every day, in fact, this week, there was another finding at the uh, Williams Lake First Nation in uh, in BC, uh, ninety a, a probable ninety um, uh, graves graves or grave sites have been identified using again ground penetrating radar. Um, more of these unmarked graves, more of these, and, and look, that fine line between an unmarked grave and a mass grave is really about timing. How many were buried at a time, honestly, and so. To me, I have a hard time distinguishing the difference between a mass grave and an unmarked grave because if you're just digging a hole and throwing bodies in um, with, with no regard, with no documentation, no, I mean, look, we, in our culture, we have ceremonies associated with what we do with, uh, with relatives who passed on. We, we have, you know, we have burial ceremonies. So the idea that these, these church-run schools would just heave bodies into a hole and, and, and literally, when we talk about digging a hole and throwing a body and covering up, covering up is exactly what these were all about. And we don't know. We don't know what Deb Hallen's going to do. And if I know the slow pace of addressing issues, this might not even be, be, get addressed until the next administration. Whether the next administration ends up being the Biden administration, that remains to be seen. But uh, this is how slow some of these things go. And look, I understand addressing an issue like this is is a, is a big undertaking. I mean, because the 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 amount of criminality, the the heinousness of the act, the this level of genocide. I mean, as I've said before, residential schools represent all five characteristics that are listed according to international law as um, as meaning as the meaning of genocide you know the idea of killing people the idea of creating conditions by which uh, people would cease to exist uh, sterilization taking kids uh, removing uh, removing kids from uh, you know from their families I mean, all of these things I mean there are five specific um, specific criteria that, that any one of them equals genocide and they and they read like a playbook for, for residential schools. So it's a huge undertaking. And, and as much as Canada has been, you know, and I don't mean Canada as a country, I mean the place, um, because Canada already went through its so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There wasn't a whole lot of truth and there wasn't a whole lot of reconciliation. And today, every week, we get another, another breaking story, another breaking story about grave sites being proven. I don't want to be, say even being discovered because Many of our people know that they're there, but it, they, but the churches, the the countries have been denying it, and and as much as as this is a big issue on the Canadian side, there were three times as many residential schools on the U.S. side as as in Canada. So the numbers are going to be horrific if they're if if and when they are ever totaled up. The, the level of the of atrocities is going to be absolutely horrific. Or I, let me tell you, let me reframe that. It is horrific because this stuff already happened. We're only talking about exposing these horrific atrocities at this point. 
And then, of course, what to do about it. I mean, obviously, we can't bring you know um, children back who were who were murdered or allowed to die. And 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 again, we talk about these these as children, and they were children, but those children were the peers of our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents. These schools existed for a hundred years. In many of the that much of that time, as as many as eighty to ninety percent of all children, native children were shipped off to these schools. I mean, it's an incredible number. It is an incredible act of genocide that took place. And as the details really become exposed and unravel, um, you know, I, I, I said it before on the show and I'm saying it again, this isn't about reconciliation, this is about restoration. How do we restore what was lost during that 100 years of, of residential schools? To me, that's, that's the bigger question. So, I mean, and, and, and it, during that period of time, we also get into, into a further cycle of other people identifying us, or and I'm, I'm sorry, not identifying, defining us. You know, I often call the federal recognition process, I call it FedREC, W-R-E-C-K. Um, if you ever heard that expression, know that I coined that phrase, and I'm not proud of it because what it really means is that this is the wrecking ball that the federal government has hurled at Native people, even as even after they stopped the 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 massacres, this is the wrecking ball that was being hurled at us. We we had a whole period called the termination era where the federal government says, "Well, we don't we need, don't need to recognize you as a uh, as a Native people anymore." And the federal government government prides itself by saying, "Oh, there's 573 federally recognized tribes." You know what? That's BS, because. What the federal government calls a federally recognized tribe, as I said earlier, is a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Of those 573, and I don't know, maybe that number is higher now, I don't know how many really regard themselves. Some do, but I don't know how many really regard themselves as subordinate to the laws of the United States. You know, back in the 1860s, I don't know, I'm sorry, it might have been earlier, in the, maybe 1830s, a Supreme Court justice described us as domestic-dependent nations. Well, how the hell could we have been domestic-dependent nations when, when, when we were sovereign nations that, that were not operating out of uh, dependency on the United States? I mean, some were essentially imprisoned already, and most of the, the, what was defined as reservations uh, you know, coming out of that era were as much like prison camps as anything. The United States had never, in the, in the 19th century, had not succeeded in subjugating Native people. In 1923, they tried to pass a law that says that all Native people are, are hereby uh, citizens. It was a declaration. It, it was the, called the Indian Citizenship Act, 1924, where Congress, Senate and House, in the declared that we were citizens. Regardless of whether we wanted it or not, they just wanted to make this blanket declaration that we were, we were hereby declared to be U.S. citizens. They knew that didn't work. They knew it, it didn't accomplish their goal. So what they did is 10 years later, they passed the Indian Reorganization Act, which would further try to define Native people as subordinate uh, tribes to the United States. But even that they knew didn't work because as today, even today, as we address things like Native people trying to reclaim lost lands, you know, uh, ancestral lands, there's a process, I'm not a fan of it, it's called the feed to trust. It's this idea that land can be taken out of the, essentially the public domain, taken out of you know, private land ownership, you know, or state land ownership, and it can be placed in trust to the federal government for the use and enjoyment of Native people. And, you know, and they consider that a land transfer. Um, but the title still remains a U.S. title. Not all lands are like that. Where I live here uh, on the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation, this land is not a U.S. deed. There's no U.S. deed, no state deed to this land. This land is, is owned in fee. It's, it's absolute title to the Seneca Nation. Most places aren't like that. But, but to go through this process, this fee-to-trust process, one of the tests that has been developed is to say, well, if you... We're not a tribe under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934. You can't reacquire lost lands. Now think about that. So what they're saying is, oh, 
So there were native peoples who were not under jurisdiction, under the jurisdiction of the United States in 1934. And, and now to further punish those, those, <laughs> those native peoples, they're saying, yeah, any hope that you ever had of reclaiming lost land, we're, we're going to prohibit that. And we're going to call it the 1934, uh, 1934 rule. <laughs> I mean, this kind of shows you the failures of their policies, the failures of their laws. You know, and, and, the, and the fact of the matter is, this idea that the United States will create, literally create, what a tribe is. I mean, look, listen to this report on Deb Haaland and, um, you know, removing the word, the S word from all of these national parks and monuments. Of course, they, they describe her as an enrolled member of the Laguna Pueblo. You realize that both those words are Spanish? I mean, both of them. Both of them are Spanish. So, to me... I understand that that's a designation a, of, a, of a tribe recognized by the, the, by the United States as a tribe, banner, nation of Indians supporting the laws of the United States. But it doesn't even address who she is. I mean, as, as far as what her, her origin story is. I mean, it, it describes a place and that has now been re-identified, relabeled with Spanish words. Look, we've got We've got places that are labeled with French words. We've got the uh, Lac de Flambeau. We've, we've got Cour d'Alene. We've got all kinds of places that have all of these names, everything from English names to French names to Spanish names to, and, and very few um, have their original names. You know, and, and we fight like hell to reassert. We don't call the, my, the native territory that, that I'm closely associated with up in, um, the northern part, you know, just along the St. Lawrence. We don't call it um, St. Regis. We call it Aquasasne. We call the place that I live here Cataragas. We don't call it some other, some other name. Now, we struggle with, with the names we call ourselves. I oftentimes have to identify, identify myself as Mohawk, but then I always try to remind people that that's not our word. It's Gunyageha, Gunyagahaga. That's, that's, that's what I am. You know, but but again, our own right to define ourselves has been taken from us. You know, as a, and I'm going to talk a little bit later on about what's happening with the fight over gaming, another uh, responsibility that the Dev Hallen seems to be shirking. And while I'm trying to help the Senecas on much of this this debate, this argument, this conflict, I, I once I once again FYI, delved into Regan's here. Okay, thanks. I, went, I delved into reading the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, and what a miserable, rotten piece of legislation that was. Regan, I know that you're, you're in the building, and, and I know we, we, don't usually talk, yes, I'm here. we don't usually talk much about gaming, but, you know, in, in 1986... Before we get into, before we get into the gaming, I, I do want to just add some things about... Oh, go um, ahead, please what do. ...what you were discussing in terms of... Yeah, for, for folks that are unaware... Um, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, as John was saying, um, has ordered the word, the S word, um, which is S-Q-U-A-W, removed from all federal lands. Um, for those who are unaware, it's an incredible. Oh, did we lose you? It's an, incredi it's an incredibly derogatory term referring to indigenous women. It unfortunately, exists on a number of different um, federal lands, specifically national parks. And back in November, uh, Howland announced that this, there would be um, a creation of an advisory committee that would uh, develop and review the name-changing proposals that affect specifically derogatory names. And so the intention, I think, is that a number of these place names will be renamed through the indigenous words, names, um, whatever these parks, mountains, you know, occupy and will, you know, will begin to start having... Uh, we'll see indigenous language more often um, replacing, you know, these incredibly racist terms. But I, but I always wonder, you know, what, what that means in terms of naming and like renaming. And of course, you know, I would, I do want um, S word mountain in Clear Creek County in Colorado to, to be renamed as it has been um, in a, for the, you know, for the Cheyenne leader um, that it, the traditional place name was uh, Mestaihe. And that's its intention is the name is now the, the mountain has been renamed. Um, and there's been a number of proposals that have been submitted now to this advisory committee that Deb Howland is, um, 
is apparently heading up. But I'm curious to see what what this will do, uh, what what change will happen, um, what the intentionality is behind it. Of course, I appreciate the removal of an incredibly derogatory and racist and sexist word from federal land. But also it's important to understand that this is only for federal land. So the term can still be used on state and private land. So, you know, curious to see how this uh, kind of plays out. But I just wanted to give a little background information so that folks understand, um, you know, where this conversation is coming from. Yeah. And and to your point, there are literally thousands by now, or certainly in excess of a thousand places that are not federally la- federal lands that uh, that are every look, there's <laughs> there was resorts, there's mountains, there's rivers, there's roads, there's townships. So there, much. There, there are so many. <laughs> there's so much usage of this word. I mean, it's it's actually pretty incredible that this word had that much traction. As as I've listened to folks from California talk about the the, the over 130 places there, and you know, and and the you know the 70 in, in this state and the 80 in that state, and as I as I hear that, especially as I said in the beginning of the program, that words that that derogatory piece of a word, its origins are tied up this way from the Northeast. And yet it is spread so almost violently, I would say, across the entire, you know, um, and the U.S. and Canada for that matter. It's it's just incredible that a word like this could gain this level of traction. It really is. I also want to note something about this advisory committee. The advisory committee, which is called the Beyond Reconciliation and Place Names, it's going to be comprised up of four people who will be members of different indigenous tribes, one to represent each tribal organization and one to represent native Hawaiians as well. Um, So I'm curious, and apparently these are going to be like experts in anthropology and cultural studies and geography. um, And then also include some members of the general public. I'm a little confused about the organization of it. And I I wonder if, um, I wonder if, uh, you know, change in shape as this advisory committee changes in shapes. But as of right now, it seems to be an, an interesting um, amalgamation of different voices from all over Indian country. Well, and, and I wonder how those people are selected. I mean, are they are they put there yeah, by truly. by their own people, or or they been? You know, let's face it. Deb Hallen wasn't exactly put in her position by us. <laughs> I mean, so when I think about yeah. these things, you know, how do these people get that that place? And and I'm not trying to. Look, I, I am not trying to deride any Native people who are trying to address this issue, but I, I like you, am concerned about how it's comprised. Is four people really enough? I mean, we're talking about, I, I think, did I hear the number right? Like there was 900 federal sites that they're talking about changing this? I mean, that's just the federal sites. I feel like the best way to go about this would be to, you know, organize with the local community, obviously, you know, yes. with the with the communities that these place names affect. I wonder what that looks like on federal land in areas of uh, where tribes are not federally recognized. Or they've um, been, or they've been like removed. Areas, <laughs> or they've been removed. And then my other thing is also like a lot of these place names are shared places with a number of different nations and tribes. So I wonder, you know, who, Will they have a number of names? Will it be a single name? Who decides which name, which language, which tribe is represented in this renaming? Um, yeah, I, I'm curious as to how this will all kind of pan out. Mind you, this announcement was made back in November. And since then, there's been a couple of updates. But um, this Advisory Committee on Reconciliation and Place Names is still very new. And I look forward to kind of tracking and seeing how this um, how this unfolds. Um, because as of right now, it seems a bit haphazard. And we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens, but that this is, and, and it reminds me so much, and this is kind of a, something I do want to discuss uh, at some point is the removal of the Theodore Roosevelt statue. From yeah. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get American right to that Museum next. Of natural history. Yeah. So I wonder how these are all in conversation with one another in terms of advisory committees. Well, and, and, and again, one of the things that, that concerns me uh, still talking about this um, order by, by Halland over the S word is it ties to what I was talking about before you came on, which is the fact that the federal government has has changed our identities by what they actually call us. I mean, even the the yeah. the, the names of our peoples. That I hate to use the word tribes, but however we are designated. But like I said, so many of these yeah. names associated with our or, our native organizations um, 
have been manufactured or they defaulted to some English or French or, or, or Spanish words. So does that really accomplish if we're talking about renaming places that are using a, a racial slur with some native etymology, do we end up turning it into, you know, into a word that has now been accepted because of federal recognition? I mean, I, it's still problematic yeah. is, is kind of my point. Yeah, it's, you know, I see, I, you know, I, I saw this and I was like, of course I want this word removed. Of course I do. And I also was just like, you know, I hate the federal government. So this just feels like, uh, you know, this doesn't feel really helpful. And are they then going to start putting together a truth and reconciliation committee? Are they then going to start putting together? This all just feels like, um, you know, Deb Howland's intention is to adopt the policies of Canada into the U.S. And the reality is that all of those policies are still incredibly violent towards First Nations people. So I don't see the benefit in um, in all of these reconciliation committees that Howland is introducing. Well, and but I also we know find that they do not work, and we've seen proof that they do not work. I also know, like, find that in, in much reference. of it is, is checking a box. Is uh, yeah, see, we did of this. Of course, you know, it's you know, I always have to remind people the distinction between um, what's called out in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is this idea of free, prior, and informed consent, even as it relates to addressing, you know, some of these inequities. I mean, it's free, prior, and informed consent. That's not consultation. That, that is not yeah, consultation. That is not saying, oh, well, we put four Native people on a committee, and uh, um, so we're going to call that, uh, you know, a done deal then. That's not free prior informed consent. Yeah. I mean, and even how consent is garnered within a Native people, a uh, group of Native people, is not always the easiest thing. So, look, consent is a very, very, consensus, I should say, is a very difficult thing consensus, to achieve. Yeah. But the reason it's difficult is because it's so meaningful and just coming up with some shortcut, like some democratic principle that says 51% get to decide or, or rule over the 49 is yeah, that might be efficient, but it's not equitable. And, and so, so again, I find it very disturbing. All right. Hey, let's, let's talk about uh, <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt. Um, First, uh, why, why don't you go ahead and describe, you you take your first crack at describing this, this heinous <laughs> statue, this. please. Of course. Okay, so for those who are unaware, um, the American Museum of Natural History, which is in New York City, which is, you know, Lenape Hooking, um, is uh, it's this large museum. It's a survey museum, um, and it's was funded and is funded by the Roosevelt family. Um Specifically in front of this museum is the equestrian statue, which has been there for quite some time. And a lot of folks have seen it. Um, you know, it's like a tourist stop. But if, uh, oh, um, it's called the equestrian statue of Theodore Roosevelt, for those who may not know it. It's been at the museum's entrance for about 40, year, 40 years. And it, it depicts um, Roosevelt on a horse. He's shirtless, by the way, and he's or no, he's he's dressed and he's flanked by two shirtless um, people. One is an indigenous man and one is an African man. Um, and they're supposed to be upholding and, uh, you know, really elevating uh, Teddy Roosevelt while he's on this horse. Uh, the statue was commissioned in 1925 specifically to stand in front of these steps. Um, as you can imagine, it's an incredibly racist depiction of white supremacy. You know, you have a literal hierarchy of a white man on a horse being flanked by two indigenous people, um, both of which are, you know, incredibly racist uh, and stereotypical uh, archetypes uh, holding up this white man who, if for those who are unaware, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was a eugenicist. Um, and he was, uh, you know, a, a racist. He's a president of the United States. He's a part of the settler colonial narrative. Um, the statue has been part of larger conversations for quite some time now because um, it upholds Roosevelt's legacy, you know, his, his views on race, his, his support of eugenics. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of scrutiny, so much so that a number of people have taken action against the statue, including myself. Um, and, uh, you know, we've done a number of things to bring awareness to the statue, wrapping the statue in fabric to bring awareness to missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, trans, and two-spirit people. Uh, we've, you know, demanded the removal of the statue, uh, decolonized this place, has held um, 
for three years in a row, they held a decolonial Columbus Day um, tour through the space and always end in front of the statue calling the removal of the statue. So that, you know, we, we are aware that monuments are, are incredibly racist and this one is a particularly and overtly racist. So back in 2017, a commission was established by uh, de Blasio at the time in order to evaluate the statue and several other controversial monuments around the city, including the Columbus statue at Columbus Circle, the Columbus statue in Queens, the Columbus statue in Brooklyn. Um, and so there was, uh, and of course, nothing came out of this commission, which is why I was laughing about this other advisory commission that Deb Haaland is putting together for the renaming of monuments. Is We've seen how these commissions work out. We saw how it worked out in 2017 with, um, with this monument commission. Uh, and they decided in the end that there was going to be no intention of removing the statue. However, after immense amount of pushback, specifically in reaction to the uprisings um, in May 2020, it became, you know, clear to the city, I guess, since people were obviously continuously upset about it, that the statue needed to be removed. So it's been under the process of removal. It finally was removed two days ago. However, it is not just being removed and melted down as what the ask is. It is now being removed and re-erected in North Dakota. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, exactly. Um, it's and it's so it's. I'm trying to remember where it's going in North. Oh, it's Dakota. supposed to. It's actually supposed to go to the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. Roosevelt Library. <laughs> Library. That's what it was. I was like, oh god. So, and it's, so it's not going to be melted down. In fact, it's just being removed from the American Museum of Natural History to the Theodore Roosevelt Library in Medora, North Dakota. And it was going to be having a huge opening for it in 2026. So as you can imagine, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, upset about this. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people who are extremely happy to see the statue removed out of, you know, out of New York City, see the statue removed from the American Museum of Natural History. Um, but I think that a lot of people don't realize that this is not the end of this story. In fact, this statue will continue its settler colonial and racist legacy as it travels across the country and is re-erected um, from one indigenous land to another indigenous land. Let, uh, let, so, let, let me weigh in. I, let me weigh in just for a little bit here. Because, of course, please, yeah, please do. First off, uh, let, let me give my uh, some of my assessment of the statue. It is a complete um, anachronistic um, uh, image. There's, you've got. Theodore Roosevelt, in a, in wearing some sort of tight shirt, uh, like he's uh, with you know, <laughs> all buff, you know, nothing like he ever really looked looked like in the first place. So they got this this you know fictitious view of uh, or image of, of Theodore Roosevelt on this massive horse, and then you've got you flanked on either side, you've got a near naked native person and and an even more naked black person flanking him, carrying his stuff for him. Um, and the, their appearances, it's not the way a native person, I mean, this is, Theodore Roosevelt is the 20th century, by the way, <laughs> just so, so people know, it's we are fictional. talking about, it's all, it's all, yeah. so the idea that you have this, this guy wearing a headdress, like he's some sort of Indian chief flanking, carrying, uh, carrying stuff for, for Theodore Roosevelt, it never happened. It would be totally yeah, anachronistic. Truly. The idea that, that the black man represented there looks like he may have just been left off, let off of chains before he was uh, allowed to walk alongside. I mean, it is it is that bad. What I will say is, it's really the depictions are incredibly racist. Oh, I think absolutely. That, like, also, and I want people to understand that because, especially New Yorkers who have walked by this statue every day, every day as New Yorkers, you've consumed an incredibly racist archetype of both enslaved people and indigenous people. Well, let me address that because it isn't just people walking by. There have been busloads of children every single day unloaded in front of that statue every freaking day. You know, people, little kids of color looking up and, you know, and, and the crazy part is the the black man standing next to Roosevelt on, on that horseback is on the entrance to the museum side. So they literally have to walk by this noble president on a horseback and this dejected black who looks for and all the, the world like a slave standing beside him. And that's that what all the, of these that kids. That is the intention. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the intention is to depict to depict person to depict this as 
you know, part of this benign fantasy of an American history. Its intention is to have this person, an enslaved person and an indigenous person. And they're both meant to be upholding white supremacy. Like it's, Absolutely. it's such an obvious, it's such an obvious racist statue. It's, and it's so obvious to the American narrative yeah. that I cannot believe that it has taken so long for it to be removed. And I cannot believe that its removal is still, it's not even going to be melted down. Yeah. It is just going to move somewhere else and be racist there. Well, I do hope it at least, get, I, I would rather it got put inside a building. So anybody who happens by the, I, I mean, when I think about how many millions of people have been subjected to, to uh, you know, to the putting their gaze on this thing, um, you know, at least fewer people will see it in North Dakota. I mean, and I look, I know what that statue has had to endure because of the those people who protested it. I know that it's been painted several times. It's uh, it has been it has, it has been <laughs> um, had some work done, work done to it over the years. It and has I hope it continues to have the same kind of work done to it up in North Dakota. <laughs> well, I also think it's important to note something that I didn't uh, that I didn't say before is that there is within the uh, within the museum. When you enter there, uh, I think it's on the first floor. I can't remember. It's been quite some time since I've been in there. But there is a um, part of this statue. They added part to an exhibition, which is meant to be in conversation with the general public. And they have people, they have a picture of the statue on this like large, uh, like foam core piece. And then um, comments from the community about how they feel about the statue. And it's part of their reinterpretation of the statue. So even if this was moved inside, as I think that that was kind of the like original intention about having this conversation indoors, is that first, the conversation isn't being had. The institution still has the statue or right. still had the statue on the outside. And, and then inside, the conversation wasn't real. It was so clearly just like, let's talk about something controversial rather than actually just saying, oh, this is a racist statue and let's remove it. Rather, it was like, no, let's give this space for an interesting discourse. Let's give this space for an interesting dialogue. And that's something that I've noticed a lot of museums begin to do. Rather than just reckoning with the fact that a lot of the things within their collections are racist, a lot of things on display are racist, a lot of their didactic labels are racist, rather than just reckoning with that and removing them, they like to have these conversations, discourse, dialogue, bring people together about it. And the reality is we don't need to be brought together about it. We are, you know, like, just remove it. We don't well, and, and that, that's not to mention how racist how the the um the acquisition of many of those exhibits are in the first place. Of course. Yeah. Well, it's also just like the same thing with the Columbus Monument. Like, I don't care what Italian Americans in New York City think about the Columbus Monument. I do not care. Honestly, your opinion is void because in the end, it's a racist statue of of, of a colonizer that participated in horrible and heinous acts against brown people and black people. Like. No, we just remove it. We don't need to have a, a conversation about how it how Columbus is, you know, part of the Italian American narrative, which already is, you know, it's debunked. It's not inaccurate. true. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's look, really I, not true. So I, that already no, you know. I also have to give credit. Um, I was not familiar with the statue because look, I don't live in New York City. Um, and I wasn't that I wasn't familiar with the statue until it was a WBAI listener who called in to the program and actually invited me to go to the museum uh, with her. And so I went there. And so the first time I laid my eyes on it, it was because of a WBAI listener who, who thought it was really important that not only myself, but this program um, be, is aware of it. And so, of course, I know that you and, like I said, Shawnee and others have been really railing against this thing for, for many years. And, and I've, like I said, I've only been aware of this thing for, you know, probably seven or eight years. I, I wasn't that familiar with it. It, it was probably that long ago, but um, I've talked about it um, numerous times on the program. I've obviously covered every time um, it, it had paint slung on it. And, and of course, every, um, it has been part of the stop, right? On the uh, Indigenous People's Day, when there was actually tours that were going from Randall's Island over to, uh, over to yeah. the museum uh, every year. They've pretty much done that. And then of course, down to the, down to Columbus uh, circle. Um, and it, by the way, which is just down the street from where this thing was. So um, maybe we can start a trend. A, exactly. A, right a, down the street, a neighbor, a neighborhood watch group <laughs> that removes these, these statues. I, I also, Oh God, uh, trust me, they exist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's just, you know, it's, it's really disappointing, you know, but it's, 
it's really disappointing um, that even a win is not truly a win. And I say that, for example, with this statue, you know, like everyone was so excited when we heard that the statue was going to be removed. Like so many people of color were just like thrilled because we know just like the Marion Sims statue that was in uh, Central Park that was removed. That was incredibly racist. You know, like people were so excited to see that happen. Uh, and, and I was really thrilled as someone who's, you know, organized against the statue numerous for numerous years with a number of people, you know, like we were so thrilled to finally see this removed, but then just to see that it's actually just going to be relocated to another place um, was, you know, it, it just showed that there was no intention of actually reckoning with, you know, these histories of violence, yeah. but rather just to, to placate. You know, they just didn't want to hi- continue hiring security for the statue. That, that's really what it boiled down to. They well, and just like all the Confederate statues, having to hire NYPD officers, and just like all the Confederate yeah, statues like, is, were about advancing white supremacy are... and that kind of stuff, all uh, the bulk of the statues that are made in that in that whole hundred year period of time was was always about advancing white supremacy, regardless of whether it was in the South or whether it's in yes. in front of a New York museum. I mean, it's incredible. Your- and actually, it's it's actually incredibly problematic to only view Confederate statues as statues that uphold white supremacy. Absolutely. And it's part of a really neoliberal nar- narrative of what racism looks like. Sure, um, I agree. And the reality is that racism is white supremacy. And we see these statues all over the place. It doesn't matter if it's Teddy Roosevelt. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, Jefferson Davis. These are all racist. Right. So there's no in- there's no reason for them to exist other than to continue to uphold a narrative, to remind people every day that they're on occupied lands, that this is a settler colonial state. Um, I do want to say the last thing I wanted to know about specifically this tour, um, of, or this rather this removal of the statue, is that there is a, a route that has been mapped of the, where the statue will go from New York to North Dakota. It will have some stops along the way. And from my understanding, there will be some, um, you know, some discourse and conversation around it. That's a nice so way of putting it. I would it. invite folks <laughs> in those states. Yeah, I would invite folks in states that will be seeing the statue come through to really, uh, you know, advocate and make their voices heard. If um, you're not familiar with the statue, you statue can see plenty of. not have a you, full tour. If you're not familiar with it, you can see plenty of pictures of the statue. But you know what? If you get a chance to to come out at any spot along this uh, this tour, this this journey. Uh, to see this thing, look, you only have to see it for yourself to see how how overtly racist it really is, and and I encourage you to do so, and, and I encourage people so to speak disgusting. up. Yeah, hey, I, you brought up something that I yeah, and, and and it's a good segue to uh, to at least addressing. I'm not obviously we're almost out of time, so I'm not going to belabor the the gaming issue. But you talked about it's sad that a win is not a win. Well, this goes back to the gaming issue yeah. because in in 1986, the uh, the Cabazon. Um, mission what they call the Cavazan Mission Indians um, uh, were taken to court over their bingo uh, operation, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in like I said, in '86 there was a ruling that essentially the Cavazan won, but even that win is always tainted because what the what the Supreme Court basically said: well, if the state has gaming, then Native people can have gaming. Now I don't know why what what a state does should impact what we do on our territories. I mean, but the, the, the court was all about recognizing the distinction of the land and our ability to, you know, to, uh, you know, create, you know, commerce and, uh, and become more, you know, self-sustainable and that kind of stuff. Um, but still put in there this, in, in their ruling that um, if a state has gaming, native people can have gaming. Now it essentially affirmed what we are already been doing and, and asserting uh, was that we had the right to do, you know, to, to generate income through the use of uh, of gaming operations. I mean, so it affirmed that, but it did put that piece in there about if a state, you know, had gaming. Within, by the next year, there was such a scramble um, in Congress to create where there was none, a federal, an underlying federal um, statutory framework for what gaming uh, in Native territories look like. And it is deplorable. Native people didn't have any say on it. This thing passed in, um, in, in 1987, uh, and it, 
it basically empowered states to, to have a role in the regulatory function of, of gaming through what would be state native gaming compacts. There, there was supposed to be all kinds of oversight on the part of the federal government, none of which ever existed. In the 33 years of uh, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act's existence, the Interior Department has defaulted every time on, uh, on, on holding any states accountable. There was a provision in the law originally that said if a state refused to negotiate in good faith, the native entity could sue the state. Then Florida um, protested that. They fought it in court, and they, uh, and they won in Supreme Court. So that um, federal court um, uh, leverage that native people were supposed to have went away. And nothing was ever codified in law to replace it. So what exists today is the sense that native people have that if a state wants to shut down a fully functionally, fully operational casino that's been operating for, for a decade or more, that they can simply refuse to negotiate a compact and then uh, enforce a shutdown. That's not true, but the absence, in the absence of, of folks like Halland and all of her predecessors from ever addressing it, that implied threat, which has really led, led to nothing short of extortion, has forced states like New York State, including the, the current governor, Kathy Hochul, to be pushing on native territories to give them a, a huge sum of their gaming revenue. In, in, in the Seneca's case here, what they give up for what is called revenue sharing is 25% of the what they call this net slot drop. That means all the money taken into a slot machine minus the payout, 25%, then 25% goes to the state. All of the expenses that of operating a casino comes out of the, the 75. So if you break it down to net slot revenue, it's closer to 50%. So the state gets 50% of the take for nothing. They claim that they, well, we're offering an exclusivity, but the state competes against the, in that gaming market with everything from the lotteries to the racetracks to slot parlors at the racetracks. And of course, now the state has class three casinos through, uh, strewn throughout the state. So this is my, one of my big criticisms of Dev Hallen because this is an easy one for her to fix. It, frankly, it was an easy one for any one of the interior secretaries to fix. And it's her freaking job to do it. So um, there's a real major controversy um, that is beginning to rage here in Seneca territory because many of the uh, Seneca leaders wanted to go ahead and pay the state and, um, and renew a new gaming compact with revenue sharing, and the people are, are really against it. So I'll keep folks posted on what's happening here. I, met, I talked about this on the last program I did. It was just uh, for WPFW. Um, I want to remind people that this show is a podcast. You could find... Um, Let's talk, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Resistance Radio with John and Regan on any of the major platforms, uh, podcast platforms, as well as my other show, which is called Let's Talk Native. <laughs> you can find that on, uh, on as a podcast too. Um, I want to thank you, uh, thank everybody for listening. I want to thank Regan for really coming in and really hitting hitting so hard on, on especially on the Roosevelt stuff and um, and this Holland um, uh, S word issue. Uh, it, it is. You bring so much to this program that I, I can't thank you enough for, for being such a big part of it. Of course, always happy to be here. All right, that's it for us this week. We'll uh, see you next week. This is John Kane and Regan DeLoggins for Resistance Radio. Yahweh. <laughs>